The Government Accountability Office is out with its latest assessment of the Pentagon's most expensive weapons programs. It's the 20th annual look-see. GAO says it's seen some improvement in DOD's management of major acquisitions during that time. But the cost and schedule growth are still big problems. And while every program's unique, one common theme is that DOD tends to commit itself to big systems before it has enough information about technology risks and cost estimates. Shelby Oakley is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the GAO. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about some of the trends in this year's report. A lot of different systems assessed in this report, as there are every year. Can't talk about every single one of them in a 10-minute radio interview, obviously. But can you take us through any common themes you found in terms of what the trends are toward what's leading to capability delays and cost overruns? Again, understanding that every system is unique. Absolutely. Yeah, you pinpointed it right there. You know, we cover a lot of different systems and they experience a lot of different challenges. And, you know, with these being cutting edge technologies, they are just uniquely challenging to develop. But the bottom line and the consistent themes that we've seen over the years are that, you know, these are big investments, billions of dollars being made without information to reasonably assume that they're going to actually pan out. You know, we consistently see a push to commit to programs before information is available. And then, you know, once that happens, once they move forward without information available, it's difficult for programs to catch up. And as they proceed through development, you know, the problems just compound and inertia sets in and more financial commitments are made. And at that point, it just is what it is. And, you know, we've seen over the years that very few programs actually get canceled. And so DOD has really recognized this consistent challenge that it has and what the result has been has really threatened our military advantage and has taken some steps over the past several years to really accelerate capability development to address these things. But we still continue to see that over half of the major defense acquisition programs that we reported are delayed. They're delayed from achieving their initial operational capability, and none of them are reporting accelerating any cycle times. And so that can be a little rough. And so let me give you an example that I think is illustrative of the kinds of things that we see. So the case C-46. You're familiar with the tanker program. Mm-hmm. The program began with a contract valued at about $5 billion, but DOD didn't really have appropriate knowledge of the requirements or the design for the program. And so as a result, as we all know, it's experienced a lot of cost growth and importantly, schedule overruns, and it continues to have a lot of design instability. And, you know, these aren't insignificant things. The program has like critical deficiencies that still need to be addressed. And, you know, the Air Force is forced to accept planes that have deficiencies and, you know, deal with the ramifications of that. And so it's that kind of lack of knowledge at the beginning of programs that we see really have a significant impact across DOD's body of programs. Yeah, I want to stick with the theme of moving ahead with insufficient information. The air tanker example seems like a really good one to me because there you've got a program that's built on a commercial airframe and the technology concepts behind air tankers are not exactly new. Okay, but in other cases, DOD really is inventing new stuff here. And so there seems like there's got to be cases where you just don't know what you don't know. How much of that goes on? Are there common pieces of missing information that DOD could get after and make decisions based on. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's exactly what our body of work is based on, is knowledge-based acquisition. It identifies those common pieces of knowledge that programs should have to decrease the risk of unmet expectations, whether that's in the form of schedule or cost or capability or all three. And so our work over the past several decades has looked at the defense acquisition cycle and identified the types of information that is necessary to make good decisions and avoid some of these challenges. And so, you know, let me give you an example. At Milestone B or when development starts, our work has shown that a program should have a sound business case. And that means that the requirements of the program match the resources. And when we're talking about requirements, we mean the time of the technology, for example, or what it's being asked to do can actually be done (laughs) within existing resources. And, you know, there's specific types of information that help decision makers determine that. And so, you know, understanding whether or not the technologies, some of which may be new, have been developed enough to be able to be tested in an operational environment. And that gives really good information to say, okay, we can move forward with basing the design of our program off of these technologies that are going to be the game changers that are going to be able to provide us with that capability. And so we have often advocated for spending a little bit more time before you begin a program to mature those technologies such that that information is available upon which to base a good sound business case for the program. The same thing with resources, you know, like when you're doing a realistic or not, assessment of the cost or schedule that it's going to take to get what you want within the timeframes you want, that can provide good information for decision makers of, can we fit this program within our portfolio of programs? Can we afford it over the long term? And what adjustments can we make if we can't? And that often just doesn't happen with these programs. And so while we've seen some improvements over the years, for sure, DOD has definitely made some good strides. We still continue to see you know, the lack of information and some of these big decisions. And and why that matters is because, as I mentioned before, once a program is approved and you start awarding contracts and the industrial base is engaged, it's really difficult to stop that inertia, even when things aren't going exactly the way you want them to. Do you have any good news stories to tell us out of these 63 programs? I mean, are there any that you looked at that really did embrace some of the principles that you just talked about and moved forward with good knowledge ahead of time? Just generally, we've been able to directly tie the use of the knowledge-based practices that we advocate to significantly less unit cost growth and schedule delays on programs. And so we've been able to do that analysis. But if you wanted to ask me, like, is there one sterling example of a program that implemented every knowledge-based practice? The answer is no, there's not. But I think what our data shows is that even implementing some of them, especially at the beginning of development, can have a positive effect. And so one good example that we saw, you know, we reported in 2018, the Navy has a program called the Expeditionary Transfer Dock Expeditionary Sea Base Program. And it put a lot of work into attaining good design and construction knowledge before making the commitments, before agreeing on the cost and schedule and, you know, awarding the contract. And that enabled the program to be able to achieve its initial capability with $697 million in cost savings and no cost growth. And so just having that level of knowledge before committing to the program allowed them to see those outcomes. We also have, you know, the middle tier of acquisition programs or a new pathway within DOD, you know, that are really intended to be the vehicle for DOD to get capabilities to the warfighter faster. And we have seen some successes in that pathway as well. One MTA program that we could highlight is the F-15EX. 
That program is intended to fill a gap between fourth-generation fighters and fifth-generation fighters like the F-35. So this program did a lot to be able to execute under the rapid fielding pathway. It had most of the elements of a business case in place before it began, and as a result, it remains on schedule, and it's likely going to achieve its initial operational capability in, in 2023. So, you know, there are some successes that we can point to, but, you know, <laughs> again, not an overwhelmingly uh, sterling example to point to, though. Yeah, fair enough. I wanted to ask a little bit more about those MTA programs, because it seems like the congressional intent there was to incentivize DOD to move ahead on programs where there was a reasonable amount of knowledge or expectation that you could get something into the field within five years, or at least prototyped within five years. Has DOD seemed to have been using Section 804 in that way as a vehicle for these programs with bigger foundations of knowledge? Not always. (laughs) So as you mentioned, that is the intent of the pathway, right? That DOD is able to provide an operational prototype or field capability within a five-year time period. So five years in the acquisition world is very short, obviously, right? I mean, most programs take upwards of 20 years to get out, which is the problem. So at its very core, it would have to be based upon a high level of knowledge about what capabilities are available. And really from what we've seen so far, the pathway has enabled the services to get programs started faster. You know, they're able to start them much more quickly because they're not beholden to traditional acquisition policies like, you know, the joint requirements process or the DOD 5000. But based upon the kinds of programs that we're seeing using the pathway, it's really unclear that many of them will actually finish any faster and provide capabilities to the warfighters faster. To just give you an illustrative example is, you know, more than half of the programs, the MTA programs we reviewed are, are planning to to transition to the major capability acquisition pathway. So they'll become MDAPs eventually to either pursue like additional development or production through that pathway. And so, you know, the question is, are these programs really meeting the intent of actually delivering capabilities to the warfighter if they become a series of strung together programs across different pathways? Mm. And so we really hope that DOD will use the experience gained in the MTA efforts to shorten the overall timeframes once in the major capability pathway. But that's really dependent on DOD taking advantage of the knowledge that's gained in that MTA pathway and structuring those acquisitions programs in a good way. And so we are seeing some outcomes, like the Army's MPF program, Mobile Protective Firepower. It began in 2018 as one of the first MTAs, and you know it has conducted vehicle assessments and limited user testing all within three years, and it's going to be on track to award a low-rate production contract this fiscal year. And that seems like the kind of thing that is you know, exactly what the MTA pathway is intended for. But other programs like the Air Force's Aero program, the Air Launch Rapid Response Weapon, has experienced a lot of challenges that indicate that its schedule and its approach for that program under the MTA pathway was a bit aggressive. And importantly on that one, you know, they were moving forward despite these challenges with wanting to buy additional missiles. And Congress had to step in and say, no, you know, you need to fund more development for this program before you go into buying, you know, production quantities. 
And speaking of pathways, Shelby, before you go, definitely wanted to ask you about the new software acquisition pathway because that does seem to me like one of the biggest reforms DOD has made to its own acquisition instructions in recent years. I was a little bit surprised to find that out of those 63 programs, you only found one that was even starting to use the software acquisition pathway. And I know DOD is using it for other things. Is the answer just that they're really just applying it to things that are more pure IT rather than weapon systems that are software intensive? To be fair, since the software acquisition pathway is newer than almost all of the programs that we've reviewed in our annual assessment of weapons programs, it's not really that surprising to us that most haven't switched their software development efforts over to that pathway. And that's something that we plan to continue to kind of keep an eye on is the extent to which programs are kind of parsing off those software development efforts within their MDAPs or their MTA programs to be executed within that software pathway, because that's a capability that has been provided through the adaptive acquisition framework to be able to use multiple pathways to achieve, you know, your intended purpose. So we expect that we're going to see a growth in that number going forward. But I think, you know, an important thing that we're really seeing is that while the pathway is a super important element of improving how DOD goes about acquiring software, the practices have to catch up to what those policies are. And that's really where we see challenges. You know, we see a majority of MDAPs and MTA programs who tell us they're using modern software development approaches. And as you know, modern software development approaches are really contingent or or hinged on or uh, identified by frequent deliveries and user feedback and that kind of thing. But we're just not seeing that within the programs that we review. We're seeing longer delivery timeframes, lack of user feedback, those kinds of things that would characterize a modern approach. And so we would just really think that DOD needs to make sure that programs are indeed embracing those practices, not just giving them lip service. And we have a lot of ongoing work looking at DOD's reforms to its software acquisition practices, and we're hoping to be able to get that issued early next year. So stay tuned for some good findings there. Shelby Oakley, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the GAO, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association. Whether in-person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more.